Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Paul Giamatti and Davine Joy Randolph on their glorious new movie, The Holdovers. We review the new version of Mean Girls, which lands in cinemas this week. And the great English actor Jason Watkins and his new Oscar shortlisted short movie, The One Note Man. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. I hope you're doing well and you survive the cold. So... Awards, awards, awards. They seem to be everywhere this week in terms of the movies and TV shows. Uh, It's like Woody Allen said in Annie Hall. All they do is give out awards. Best Dictator, Adolf Hitler. The Emmys were on with great success for Succession, Beef, The Bear. So I was delighted to see that. The BAFTAs were shortlisted this week. The, the nominations were out and great Irish success again in the form of Barry Keoghan and Paul Meskell and A Lot for Poor Things, which is which is in essence an Irish production from Element. But I was disappointed to see that Andrew Scott didn't get a nod because Paul Meskell is nominated for All of Us Strangers, a new movie that's out next week. And I will be talking, all going to plan to Paul Meskell and Andrew Scott. And it's a brilliant movie about two slightly lost souls uh, who start a relationship together. And Paul Meskell is worthy of a nomination and best supporting role as he got from the BAFTAs. But Andrew Scott, his performance is brilliant. I was quite literally in tears, which doesn't happen often. So I do think he should have gotten a nod in the BAFTAs and I hope he gets one next week in the Oscar nominations, which are out on Tuesday. And sticking with awards, I have to bring you just a a quick clip because the Critics' Choice Awards were on earlier in the week, Sunday night I think it was in Hollywood and Robert Downey Jr. got one for Oppenheimer. Again, no argument with that. But he took aim at the critics because he's a lot of history with them and this made me laugh. So forgive me if you've heard this before but I want to bring you a small section of his acceptance speech. So the Critics' Choice Association you know, they've given me such beautiful uh, feedback, really, just so many great moments, and some of it's so poetic. I just want to share some of their thoughts with you over the year. The first one's kind of like haiku. Um, sloppy, messy, and lazy. The next one's more metaphoric, like Pee Wee Herman emerging from a coma. This was from a Brit. A puzzling waste of talent. (laughs) And uh, lastly, in this one lingered, um, (sighs) amusing as a bedlocked fart. Good man, Robert Downey Jr., you know. Uh, Fair play to him, fair play to him. Look, I've probably said, uh, you know, criticize him over the years not that he cares or even knows who I am but but I admire him taking aim at us I guess you would say that was very funny now plenty on the show this week but I just want to quickly mention in TV the return of True Detective 
True Detective is this crime anthology show you're probably well aware of. It's now in its fourth iteration. They're self-contained each season. They're completely different things. They are always about detectives trying to solve and find a murderer uh, and, and solve a murder case. It famously began with a first season that I thought was brilliant with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. It was a brilliant season. I, I think the other seasons went a bit off the boil to varying degrees and they almost fell in love with their own prestige TV-ness. Some of them just got a bit heavy going, I found. But the fourth season is back. Uh, it's on Sky and now TV. And the first episode was on Sunday night, I believe it was. I actually seen the first two. Sky sent me a couple of screeners. And you have Jodie Foster in the fictional town of Ennis in Alaska. And she's a pretty hard-bitten detective who doesn't really care what people think. And it's in this place in Alaska that's experiencing like days of night. It's, it's in the Arctic Circle, so there are days without sunlight. And she's investigating the disappearance of scientists from a nearby research station. Eight of them have gone missing and scribbled on a board as we're all dead. And in tandem with that, there's the thinking, certainly among some people, that there may be a link between the disappearance of, of a native Inupat woman who was an anti-mine activist called Annie. And in tandem with that, there is a state trooper, Evangeline Navarro, played by a former boxer, Callie Reese. And she's obsessed with this case of the disappearance of the girl a few years ago and her and Jodie Foster kind of form some kind of unlikely partnership. It's freezing cold even to look at it obviously because it's in Alaska but I really like this so far. It's gripping. Jodie Foster is just brilliant in it and I'm really excited about this. Uh, it, it has shades of Mayor of Easttown in it, a plot that's going in varying directions but not in so many directions that it's starting to bug you. It has a brilliant central performance by Jodie Foster as I mentioned. She's affectionate, she's tough but there's a softer side to her as well. You get the impression maybe she's been put there because of people didn't like her attitude and that might have been just simply sexism. There's a lot going on here. It's really gripping so far. So I'm very excited about True Detective on Sky at the moment. Do let me know if you might have watched any of it so far. It's on Sunday night. So the next episode is winging its way to you as we speak. You can get in touch with me. Screen time at News Talk is the email address. Now, the week's big movie is this. Well, hello. Hi. Hello. Sorry, I'm late. Oh, we're just happy to see you. Hmm. Ah. Madame, the menu? Oh, thank you. Hello, ma'am. Would you like a cocktail to start? Oh, no, I'll just take a cup of tea. Oh, come on, have a cocktail. No, 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 a cup of tea is fine. I've eaten already. And you, gentlemen, did you save room for dessert? Hmm. Yeah, what's that? That's our signature dessert, Cherry's Jubilee. Mm. Sounds great. <laughs> Bring the young vandal here, Cherry's Jubilee. I'm afraid I can't. The dish contains brandy. Same deal with the bananas, Foster. Yeah, but doesn't the alcohol just burn off? Mm. It's still against the rules, ma'am. Fine. I'll order the Cherry's Jubilee. We can share it. I can't allow that either. Can we say it's his birthday? It's my birthday. Well, happy birthday, young man. Well, let's get you a slice of cake or some other age-appropriate dessert. Christ on a crutch, what kind of a fascist hash foundry are you running here? 
Now that was a clip from Holdovers. You heard the great Paul Giamatti there. A young actor called Dominic Sessa and Davine Joy Randolph there. And in the Holdovers, Paul Giamatti is a teacher who's very much into classics and ancient civilization, but doesn't really like the kids he's teaching in this very, very fancy school in America. It's set in the 70s and he's tasked because really... The principal doesn't like him because he failed a kid. He's tasked with looking after the kids who have to stay in this boarding school. And they're called the holdovers, as in they're there for the Christmas vacation. And it ends up being, for various reasons, just one of them. The aforementioned Dominic Sessa plays a kid called Angus. Now, Angus is a smart kid, but he's there because, in a way, his mother doesn't really want him around for Christmas. And as I say, you also heard Davine Joy Randolph, who plays Mary. She's the head chef in the canteen. And she's also there over Christmas because she's having a lonely Christmas because her son, who was a student in this school, has died in Vietnam. The movie is set in the 70s, the early 70s. And all these, these three souls are together over Christmas in this big, empty school. Now, Paul Giamatti's character is determined to kind of have a firm hand over Angus over these two weeks. But he doesn't. And adventures ensue. And the three of them get to know each other. And the three of them, at different stages of life, are all somewhat lost in their lives for various reasons. The Holdovers is directed by Alexander Payne, who previously directed Paul Giamatti in Sideways, one of the greatest movies ever made, if you've never seen it. Paul Giamatti is a fantastic actor who was in Sideways, who was in Man in the Moon. People have seen him in billions. He's described often as a character actor for various reasons, and he's not always the leading man, but he's very close to the leading man. He's kind of the leading man in this Davine Joy Randolph came to prominence as an actress playing Oda Mae Brown, the psychic, in Ghost. Uh, not, not in the movie, but in the Broadway production. I mean, she's gone on to all sorts of movies and TV shows since. You will recognise her from Only Murders in the Building. She's in This Is Us. She was also in the movie The United States versus Billie Holiday. So I got to talk to the great Paul Giamatti and the great... Davine, Joy Randolph, both of whom won Golden Globes about two weeks ago for their role in The Holdovers. And I spoke to them earlier in the week. Great to see you both. Thanks for talking to me. I'm an admirer of both of you. So uh, it's lovely to see you. Davine, if I could start with you, you know, I think yours is the best character in the movie because everyone's going through trauma, but yet she's the one who's able to get on with her trauma and keep going. Whereas the other two are faffing about, now it's a great movie, don't get me wrong, but I see her as not the best, but certainly the strongest person in the movie. But that's just me. How do you see her? I don't think that's untrue. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. I never um, thought of her like, oh, she's better than the others. But... I think because of these are crazy but perfect circumstances, yeah? So because she has to do her job, it allows her to push through to a certain degree because she has subjects to Mm -hmm. nurture and take care of. She could put her energy in that. And what I love that's so beautiful about this movie is they're doing things after they become fond of one another and care for one another 
They're doing things for one another. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they're healing and helping themselves. Finding yeah. I love that. Yeah. You know? yeah. I think it's true. I do think my guy does something very strong at the end. I mean, he separates yeah. himself for somebody else, which is a pretty strong thing to do. Absolutely. And I didn't mean that as any kind of criticism. I was thinking more of like a, a Sean O'Casey play to Irish it up where like there's all these men struggling and women are struggling as well, but they're just getting on with it better. So I mean it as a compliment. And I love the movie, by the way. So maybe that was the wrong place to start. Oh, I just was thinking this is interesting. You're right. Yeah. It is like Sean O'Casey. It is a bit like that. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And the relationship between the two of us is like something of Sean O'Casey. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry. People give back to me for always Irishing these things up. But hey, I'm a prisoner of my own background. Paul, talking of O'Casey, that's where I uh, learned him was in school, obviously. I'm cognizant of the fact that my understanding is your mother was a teacher. Your dad was a professor. We've all had teachers. I had some great ones. I had some god awful ones. I see the same with my own kids now. Was it important for you to play a teacher, given your own life story? It meant a lot to me to play a teacher. Yeah, it meant a lot to me to play, to, to enter that world. I mean, it's such a, I'm so familiar with it. Mm. Um, it was kind of it was uh it was a little uh it was daunting sometimes to feel that i was going to be able to live up to to all of that stuff but yes it, it, meant, it meant a lot to me to do that yeah yeah and dave I, I watched the tv and two weeks ago you won a golden globe for your performance and rightly so does that you know how was that? I mean, I heard someone say once it was great. And then the next day I woke up and put out the trash or the rubbish, as we call it. Like, was it was it a wonderful moment? Yeah. Can I be honest, though? Please. The most exciting moment was when Paul won. Truly. Oh, wow. I'm now because I was screaming, screaming. I felt the same way about you, though. With excitement. Oh, well. I was so uh, excited. Yeah. Well, because, that's, that's lovely. Know, you, you... When you get to know someone and their work intimately and you know how hard they work at it. Uh, and when I think the biggest thing with this whole award stuff is just being acknowledged amongst people in our industry mm -hmm. for seeing the, I don't look at it as in, well, mine's is better than the other contenders. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. For me, it's just, wow, they're seeing and valuing my work in this moment oh, yeah. of my life with this project. Uh -huh. And yeah. why I'm so excited and emotional for Paul is because he's so grounded and kind and so humble. So in a like sadistic way, I love when he wins because I know he has to get up on there. Lovely. I feel the same and way I'm about so you. Well, lovely. Can I ask you one quick thing in closing, Paul? Uh, I don't think you've ever done an interview where Sideways hasn't come up. And unfortunately, this will be no exception. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I told people I was talking to you and everybody said, ask him about Sideways, ask him about Sideways. I love that movie because I think it's a beautiful study of male friendship and it's really honest. And sometimes in my head, I'm your character and sometimes I'm the other character. But why do you think people love that movie so much? I think that's that is part of it. I mean, I think it's the raw humanity of that movie and those two guys. You are, as you say, sometimes you feel like one, sometimes you feel like the other. And they're both screwed up in different ways, those guys. And so I just think there's so much vulnerability, male vulnerability yeah. laid bare in that movie. 
that I, I just think there's a kind of humanity in it that people really connect to. It's those guys are such a wreck, and you yeah. see every aspect of how they're a wreck in that thing. It's such a study of sort of that kind of disastrous personalities that everybody can relate to it somehow. I think there's some similarities with this, but I feel like the people in this movies are stronger than in yes. this movie are stronger than the guys but in that. Paul has a beautiful. Oh, would you stop? No, I'm saying this. <laughs> but Paul has a beautiful gift, right? Think about it. Are you a fan? I'm a fan. I'm everything. Of course I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah. Paul, Paul has a beautiful <laughs> gift where he has the ability, right? To do these guys who are flawed awful people, they're not awful. awful people. No, the cartoonist was not an awful person. No, he's not. You know what I mean? But they're like, see, I, I am a fan. I know what movie you're talking about. Like, you know, the 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 quote unquote mundane, the forgotten, the throwaways. He makes these men so special and so full that I think if other people were to have done it, mm. it would be caricatures and stereotypes. Mm. And this is yeah. a gift that he has. Being, and this is why I think you resonated so with Sideways and uncomfortable. with this. And, and that's why you love all his work, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Paul, what what Davine said, I fully subscribe to. <laughs> I love you. You're really... You know what I mean, sir, correct? I do. I do. Listen, I'm way out of time. You are both brilliant in the holdovers. It's one of the best movies of the year. And it was delightful to talk to you both. A treat. Thank you. Cheers. There's a love in there between Paul Giamatti and Davine Joy Randolph. And it was great to talk to both of them. The Holdovers is a fantastic film. It really is. It has heart. It has humour. It. Paul Giamatti said there it was a bit like Sideways. It is in some ways in that it has a similar vibe, a melancholy feel to it, but shades of hope as well. And also a lot of, as I, I said in it, men kind of lost in their lives trying to find a way through it. And the women who may be lost as well, trying to keep them on the right road in lots of ways. So uh, these are these are the themes of the movie. A great, great movie. And uh, you should go and see it. It's in cinemas this week. It's really wonderful. Now, another movie that's out this week is Mean Girls. Yes, the movie version of the musical of the movie. So it's a new version of Mean Girls. And we get the lowdown on that after the break. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. In the background there, you can hear Neve O'Reilly laughing at me for not getting my questions in order. <laughs> Neve joins me now because Mean Girls is the other new big release of the week, which is based on the musical, which is based on the movie of the same name from 2004. Was this a good idea or was it a terrible idea? Let's find out. Neve, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Very well. So tell me this. This is... The, this is the musical version of the musical, the musical being based on the original 2004 movie. I have that right. Yeah, I know. It's like um, one of those dreams in Inception that you're trying to explain to somebody. It's a bit contrived. So yeah, look, it is 20 years since the original film came out and I still have not got my jaw off the floor. Um, so you, you know, love the original Mean Girls? Loved the original. I was suppose I was around maybe 20 you know, when the original came out. So I wasn't quite in school, but I was recently out of school. Yeah. So it kind of resonated with me a lot. And in um, a minute, just remind people, that is about, you have Lindsay Lohan, you have Rachel McAdams. So, yeah, I mean, the original, it's not understating it to say that it's become kind of a cultural touchstone. Yeah. I mean, this was a huge 
a film and it's still quoted endlessly today. I mean, there are people who have full conversations in Mean Girls quotes and references. And our Taoiseach during lockdown referenced it. And I asked Rachel McAdams when I interviewed her about that. But anyway, let's not get into that. So yeah, it's endlessly quotable. It's like, and all over the world, I mean, it is, it is entered pop culture. Mm. Um, So, you know, it's, it's a big ask to think about remaking something like that. But as you say, it's not a straight remake. Yeah. So it is. And sorry, just to go back to the original, sorry, but in essence, it was one girl being very mean to another, a group of plastic girls, as they were seen, being very mean to a new arrival, Lindsay Lowe. Basically, yes. So the story is, and the story is very much the same in this remake. So we have a new girl uh, arriving to school, Katie Mm. Heron, who last time was played by Lindsay Lohan, Mm -hmm. this time played by Angori Rice. Mm. The twist is um, she arrives in high school, but she's not just a new girl in school. She's new to the entire concept of school. She has spent most of her life in a remote part of Kenya with her researcher mom being homeschooled. So she's had no... uh, social interaction really yeah. she's completely she doesn't know about you know um, the social rules in school and the cliques and all of that sort of thing so she arrives in North Shore High School completely a fish out of water does not know what way is up is stumbling around the place making mistakes all over the place mm. and she gets um, adopted if you like, um, by two kind of artsy um, outsiders, uh, Janice and Damien. And um, they kind of shepherd her through, you know, the cafeteria and, you know, what clicks to avoid, Mm -hmm. what clicks to go for and how to kind of navigate those very tricky waters. Um, And the school, you're right, is ruled by the Plastics, who are the cool girl group. And the leader of the Plastics is Regina George. She's the nasty one, played by... Totally nasty. So last time, Rachel Adams, who yeah. was terrific. Mm-hmm. And this time it's Rene Rapp. Right. And I just have to say that Rene Rapp was terrific. In okay. This. And not an easy thing to step into the shoes of such an iconic character. Yeah. But Rene played um, this role on Broadway. Oh, so in she, the musical. Yeah, in the musical. Right. So she really knows the role. She really inhabits it. And she brought something different to it. Um, a kind of darker edge. But in any so case... So you think she's Better than Rachel McAdams? No, I wouldn't say that. I will get to that. Oh, I have so oh, much to oh, say. abandoned studio. Uh, <laughs> um, so in any case, just to get back to the Sorry, story, yes. Yeah. Um, Stop so, making jokes and let you talk. <laughs> Stop trying to make fetch happen. Um, <laughs> so she kind of, for no other reason than her own amusement, she invites Katie over to the table and says, look, have lunch with us for the week, which is out of character because Regina George is nasty. I mean, mm-hmm. she's the ultimate mean girl. Um, so it's sort of to make fun of her. But Jan, Janice and Damien say, look, go and have lunch with her, get all the info on her, give it back to us and we'll use it to take her down. So that's kind of the setup. Yeah. Um, and just to complicate things even further, Katie unwittingly um, takes a shine to Regina's ex-boyfriend, Aaron Samuels. Okay. So that's the setup. It's yeah. very much the same as the original film, but there's a few sort of modern twists on the story. And this is written by Tina Fey, who wrote the original, yeah. and wrote the Broadway musical. And from what I've read about it, they, for want of a better phrase, and I don't mean to do it a disservice, but it's very much woke compliant in a certain yeah, extent. They've is. Like some of the storylines from the original are gone mm-hmm. and have been replaced with, yeah, more updated or woke kind of storylines. Yeah. But what I did like, uh, what they did with this was social media really brought that into it. And I mean, a lot of it is played for laughs, but when, when you see how much of a, a powerful influence social media has on these kids' lives, mm. I mean, people can be built up and torn down in an instant. Film, everything, 
yeah. all the time. Yes. And I was slightly terrified. I mean, okay. I was laughing along, but I was thinking, crikey, I'm glad I'm not a teenager in this yeah. era. You will have teenagers I, in your I life. two though. little boys. Yeah, I know. Them growing up. So yeah. that is actually brought home really well and done very well by Tina Fey. And the script is really sharp and it's really on point. And John Hamm. Yeah. is it seems from the bits I've seen seems very funny as a, as a teacher trying to teach him sex ed. He's great. So he's playing Coach Carr and you mm. might remember in the original yeah. film that that was a bit of a problematic character. Yeah. He had a bit of a fondness for the teenage girls. Uh, that's the, not happening in this one, I'm thankfully assuming. Thankfully, that's no. gone. Yeah. Um, but John, um, he has a small role in it, but he's very funny. I'd love to see him do more comedy. Um, he's a very awkward, he's a coach, obviously, but he's also kind of like a sex education counsellor and he's trying to, you know, tell the kids about this and that. And yeah. it's just, it's cringe, but very yeah. funny and yeah. very well done. What's also interesting about this is it is a musical and yet there was some controversy about the fact that the trailer seemed to go out of its way purposely to make it not look like a musical. 100%. And this is a trend we're seeing. It was the same yeah. with Wonka, the same with The Colour Purple. That's true with I mean, Wonka, they're not, actually, yeah. They're not marketing these films as musicals and I think that's deliberate because if you say something's a musical, <laughs> people suddenly go, ooh. And I had the same reaction. Mm. I said, is this really going to work? Does this lend itself to a musical? So they've hidden that very much in the marketing. But, but there is lots of music. This in it. is a musical, okay. 100%. And it, as you say, it's based on the Broadway production. Mm. And it works in its favour because for something to exist on Broadway, it's got to be good. Yeah. The music has to be good. The music are bangers in this. They're okay. really good. Now, I didn't come out singing them, but I was doing some chair dancing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the performances are great. The guy who was playing Damien in this he's a standout Shaquille Spivey is his name he's a Tony Award winning actor okay. he is brilliant he's right. got great pipes and as I said Rene Rapp played the character on Broadway mm. so the musical elements to this are brilliant okay. they're really well done and if you think about the kind of the themes of this film it, it lends itself really well to a musical you've got like betrayal and backstabbing and people going yeah. on a journey and pride before a fall these are all really universal themes that lend themselves to a musical format um, and it works well and with the musical you kind of get more of an insight into the characters because in the original it was narrated by Lindsay Lohan's yeah. character. This time, you know, different characters have their own, um, you know, power ballad to the camera. And <laughs> you get more fleshed out okay. kind of motivations for the way they're acting and, and how yeah. they're feeling and I felt that just gave it a little bit more depth. Okay. Strangely, so, I haven't asked you directly yet but this sounds like this worked for you then. It it did. I mean, I was I wasn't expecting a lot. I I still question whether there's a need yes. for this, really. Um, the original, as I said, became a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. It still stands on its own two feet. And if you and I were to say, let's watch Mean Girls and we'd both of us, both films in front of us, I would still go and watch the original. It just, it was lightning in a bottle. Those yeah. four um, performances from the four uh, actresses in it was terrific. And unfortunately, that's just not repeated here. That's not to downplay... Um, you know, the girls who have taken on these roles, they've done really well. Renee Rapp in particular is mm -hmm. a star. But that chemistry isn't there. I mean, you had Lindsay Lohan at the height of her fame. You had Rachel McAdams, um, Amanda Seyfried just before they got yeah. really big. And it was just really special. Mm -hmm. And you can't replicate that. It's a sporadic sort of thing. Um, but it worked a lot more than I thought yeah. it did. I liked the musical element to it. I liked 
the updating of, you know, the social media. Mm-hmm. And this film works best when it went off in its own direction, when it wasn't okay. going to mimic the original. And the chap who plays Damien, yeah. from what I've seen, he seems very funny, is he? He, as it's Shaquille Spivey's yeah. name, he is brilliant. He yeah. is a star and he steals the show right, yeah. in every scene. And that comes across even from the trailer. Yeah, you know? he is fantastic. He's brilliant. Okay, so definitely not bad and pleasant, but maybe pointless is overstating it, but you weren't necessarily sure the world needed another yeah, version of Mean it's Skirt? It's not pointless. I mean, there, there's a okay. point of difference to it. And with yeah. the remake, you have to ask yourself, does this take away from the original or does it add anything to it? And I think there's, it does add something to the Mean mm-hmm. universe. It isn't a straight remake. And I think you have to go into it with that in mind, okay, you know, because it's some it, it's its own thing, and I sort of wish it had done more of its own. If its own thing, it, okay, I felt like it had to pay homage, right? To the so it had a foot in both camps, like yeah, like because there was point, points I was sitting there just waiting for the iconic line, yeah, and, okay, and they're there, yeah. You know, on Wednesdays we were pink <laughs> yeah. and get in losers were going shopping, and you know there was a mention of a fire crotch as well, wasn't there? Oh, there was. <laughs> yes, yeah. There's so many coachable lines yeah. from that. So what are you going to say stars wise for Mean Girls? I think I'm going to say. Okay. I mean, it's it's fine. I think the original it casts a long shadow. Um, if you're looking for a fun popcorn flick that okay. is entertaining, you couldn't. You know, you could do far worse. Yeah. And I would recommend seeing it on the big screen because those musical numbers are big. They're for the big screen. I don't think they'll have the same impact on the small screen at yeah. home. So go see it in the cinema. Yeah, well, that actually came out. That, that's the new version of Mean Girls on Wednesday of yeah. this week. I, I don't know why they released it. Oh, on I Wednesday. do. On Wednesdays, okay. we wear pink. Oh, of course. <laughs> Silly me. Thank goodness yes, you're I'm here, here. reviewing yeah. this. So that is three stars for the new version of Mean Girls in cinemas since Pink Wednesday of this week. Uh, I've been talking to freelance writer and movie buff Neve O'Reilly. Neve, thanks a lot. Thanks, Emil. My name is Regina George. We women have to trust and support each other. You could be really hot if you change, like, everything. Have you seen any boys that you think are cute yet? Do you like them? Sure. Oh, no, I don't have any. I I was just... Get in, loser. Jemma Pelicati. Incorrect. You have to pick a French name. Chanel. No. Celine Dion. No. Beyonce. A flavour there of the new version of Mean Girls, which is in cinemas and has been since Wednesday. And Neve O'Reilly gave it three stars. Up next, the great English actor Jason Watkins on playing a bassoon player who plays one note. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now the One Note Man starring Jason Watkins and voiced by the iconic Ian McKellen tells the unique story of a lonely member of a classical orchestra whose only job is to produce the same one note every day. One day, however, a clothing malfunction sends him jolted out of his routine only to discover the beauty and talent of a fellow musician. And things start to change dramatically in his life. Now, The One Note Man has been Oscar shortlisted for Best Short Movie. It has, in essence, no words and a phenomenal score to it. As I mentioned, it stars the great BAFTA-winning actor, Jason Watkins, who has been in everything. Probably far too many credits to mention, but I'll quickly mention 1A, where he was a cliche-spouting BBC executive. Harold Wilson, Harold Wilson, 
Wilson in The Crown in a movie, a series of movies that are huge in my family all year long, Nativity. People describe him as a character actor, which is a bit of a head scratcher because I think all actors are character actors. But anyway, I'm delighted to say Jason joins me now. Jason, hello. How are you? Hello. Hi. Yes, very good. Thank you. Yes, nice to talk to you. I didn't write down that intro, so I hope it wasn't too bungled. Uh, I was because you, your credits were too long, and I thought I'm not writing all this down. I'm just going to try and remember them. I'm too old now. I think that yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can only I can only, I can only apologise for my, the volume of my work. <laughs> so listen, the One Note Man. It's an amazing piece. It's just shy of twenty minutes. Is it a strange challenge as an actor? And I don't want to give a spoiler of sorts, but there is, in essence, no words in this. So is that a blessing or a curse or somewhere in the middle to have an acting challenge where it's all on you in terms of what you do, but not what you say? Well, it's a ble- it's a complete blessing. I mean, the script was absolutely fantastic. It just, it's it's got so much joy in the script. And I think in terms of having no no lines. Well, it, it was interesting finding different ways of conveying emotions and conveying, you know, the, the character's life. I mean, it's such a clever film, and, and yet it's it's joyful, and and I think that's one of the things that really stands out about it. And that is it very much in in the script. Um, it's um, the script is a perfect beginning, middle, and end, and and it has so much heart and joy in it. So, you know, in terms of you know doing it, I think I kind of jumped at it and the fact that there were no words was kind of a bonus I didn't have to learn anything but it's a kind <laughs> of but it's a, a it's a different sort of challenge and and it was a challenge because there's so much depth in it even though it's 20 minutes and it's it it, it you know whizzes through on the page and I think mm. looking at it or it does carry its audience uh, with it you know it's got a bit of silent movie in it. It, it George Sugas the director is such a fan of the joie de vivre of movie making and he references lots of movies in, in a way and even if it's just in his subconscious and so it's a very it's a can I say very filmic short film mm. and and so it's shot beautifully and it moves quickly and it's quirky and witty and funny and it does reference other maybe other movies so in my mind you know I did I had done Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin were very much in my in my head, particularly Buster Keaton, who I, who I love. The music is gorgeous in it, uh, and uh, what I didn't realise was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, I had I don't know that much about classical music, but I had the sense that this was, I don't know, by Sibelius or Char- Tchaikovsky, or but the music in it is all original. Yeah, the music in it is one of the things that really drew me to the piece. I mean, it's. The score, uh, all the music's written by Stephen Warbeck, who's, you know, I worked with him in the theatre like many years ago, and he's then made his way into films and he did the score for Shakespeare in Love and Billy Elliot. You know, he's got an Oscar for his work. And so knowing him, it was more knowing him actually, less than the Oscar in a funny sort of way, because he was, he's such an amazing guy. And, and the score is just absolutely beautiful. I mean, what's, and it, it, it's classical music, uh, it's very accessible. It's very romantic. It's very comic, but um, and it's full of emotion. And and the thing was, is that what wasn't another challenge about doing it was that, that we were kind of following the score, really, in terms yeah. of you know the director was was following the music in his head, and he was probably you know I know the guy, the two of them worked very closely early on, 
And I'm sure some of the images that then were wrote down came out of the music and vice, and vice versa. So when I came in, I was really had the music in my head and literally George was, was directing it almost to the music. And certainly when we were in the actual orchestra playing that piece of music that we, that one man note plays, you know, every single day and leading up to that one note, that was obviously being played while we were filming it. And the moment the big, without spoiling anything, the big sort of dramatic turning moment in the film, the music was playing. So you had this in your head. So as, as, an, as an audience, you know, you're watching music and it's given a, a score and it's a heightened emotion, you go with it. Well, they were playing that in the room. So we all sort of danced to the tune of literally of, 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 of Stephen's wonderful score. And I think that gives it a really unusual and different, a different uh, complexion and a whole different sort of thing in terms of filmmaking. Yeah. And tell me this. So there's your character's this kind of groundhog day existence. He's living, going, doing the same thing every day and then going, playing this one note. And there is a dramatic moment where it changes. But for, we see you constantly playing this one note on the bassoon. Did you, because it's only one note, did you have to learn the bassoon? Can you already play the bassoon or was that put in in post-production? I did learn it. I learned to play the bassoon. I'd like to say that I uh, played the one note, but I couldn't because of the score. So because of the way that we were so, <laughs> it's like an excuse, but I learned to look as though I could play it. And I went in quite deep. And then as a, which I often do, because I wanted it, I mean, it was obvious, wasn't it, that I really needed to look like I could play it. And so, but then afterwards, I, I sort of fell in love with the instrument. So I, my luxury item of, of last year was to buy myself a bassoon, which I've done. And so I'm learning to play it. And there's, there's a couple of pieces of music that I want to be able to play in about a year's time. And, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think for him, he's, his one note is really, and this is, it's take, the whole film is taken from a, a cartoon by H.E. Bateman in the 1920s. And it's just a series of about six drawings. And it just tells this little story of the concert really and hints a little bit about his world outside but mm -hmm. George handed the whole thing and really the one what's happened what we worked out with the one note man is that his wife he's lost his wife and he's kind of settled for a very ordinary simple life which uh Ian McKellen beautifully expresses in his his uh, narration at the start and towards the end and he's sort of chosen to chose this little life and everything's going to be fine. No, if we don't rock the boat, everything will be great. And I just do this little thing, which is sort of playing one note. And uh, I mean, at breakfast, he reads different scores because he's obviously in love with music and would love to play more music. But he's kind of rather bruised, perhaps, by life. And then just at the moment where he's kind of settling into this Groundhog Day, as you say, you know, he fall, he, you know, he catches something and he's brave enough to go with it. Mm. And that's the kind of, story in the 20 minutes that's there. Yeah, and it's brilliantly told. And it, it's kind of, I suppose, a metaphor in the way Groundhog Day is as well for, you know, maybe taking a risk and getting out of whatever rut we may find ourselves in, and particularly in, in, in a post-COVID world or something like that. But perhaps I'm being a little highfalutin. But listen, it, it is in the running for an Oscar for Best Short, and uh, I certainly hope it gets one, as I'm sure you do. Jason, let me ask you this, just away from the One Note Man. I, I, I refer to you as, as a character actor uh, beforehand but I, I on the show this week as well and this isn't a name drop but I have Paul Giamatti uh, and he's also he's also regularly described as, as a character actor and you know 
he was kind of saying in a previous interview, you know, but all acting are characters. Like, but why are you guys described so often as character actors? I suppose because we play different sorts of characters. I mean, I think that's But it. doesn't every actor? Yeah, they do. But I think some actors choose to play a, play a narrower kind of field of characters, perhaps. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, hmm. you know, it's just to play something that, is closer to themselves, perhaps, and there's, there's less of an accent, there's less of a character, there's less of a, you know, maybe from a different, completely different background. But I think most actors can do that, but many choose to play, you know, what we call just play a straight leading role. But I mean, Paul Jim, is, is, is extraordinary because he's interesting, though, isn't he? Because he plays lots of different characters. And I suppose I would say that I play, you know, characters from the North, from the Americans, whatever. Mm. And, and, but, but with him, with Paul, he, you can see he's got this great range, but really you want to see him because he's so good. You want to see his thought and his take on things and you don't quite escape. He doesn't quite disappear because we like him so much. And, and I think also when you, you can't quite disappear because audiences need to connect with something that is very real and immediate and is, and is, and is familiar to them, mm. you know? So, so, why? What I, what I all I, what I try and do is, even though I may play Howard Wilson or I may play, you know, um, a, a, any other Christopher Jeffries, you know, there's a there's there's an amount of oneself in there because that's the thing, mm. that is the thing that really connects with the audience. So you may be great at doing lots of accents and sound like Howard Wilson or whatever, but that that's fine, that's good. But you have to venture, I think, anyway, a a lot of yourself, even though it's sort of cloaked in in a different guise, you know. Yeah, that absolutely. Connects, you know. Yeah, and for listeners, in case you don't know, his portrayal as Christopher Jeffers won him a BAFTA, but he's too modest to remind us of oh, that. Did I mentioned that. Sorry, <laughs> I could have mentioned lots of other things, but uh, indeed yeah. you could have. No, no, but 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 rightly so. And of course, other roles have included roles in Doctor Who and James Bond and all that. But what I wanted to ask you about, and you mentioned Harold Winston, The Crown. You know, it's the largest production Netflix have ever undertaken. Was You've been around a long time and been all sorts of sets, but was that a particularly large and vast working yeah. process? Did you find that, wow, this is different? Maybe you didn't. Yeah, no, I did. I mean, it was, yeah, they had a lot of resources at their fingertips. Even the, the casting process was exhaustive. And uh, so, you know, it, it, you know, there, that was that was many, I think there were three phases to it and there were sort of seven of us at the start. And we'd all had, we all had our own wigs made just for the screen test so i mean wow. yeah so there was that kind of money and then i think that at one point the director and the first worked out that one of the shots that we'd done was was about a million quids worth by the time that you'd put together all the various components of one particular shot essays the set you know my fee which was very small uh, but <laughs> you, you, that, that that was you know that on screen money was was vast however on the day itself, and um, with the people, you know, it's a lot with with Ben Caron and and uh, you know, and it was there was a real family feeling on the set, it, you know, mm. whatever the the scale of it, and and it needed to be scaled because of the subject matter. Obviously, there was a real family feeling, and everyone was very close, and it was almost like a very small bijou set, you know. It was a you know the actual acting; it's the same job, you know. Sure. So, uh, but I think they did really well to protect that. And and I think that that really shows in, in performances. You know, if you look at all the performances in The Crown, they're very, they're so detailed. And they know, I think that the 
creatives knew that those were the things, like I said earlier, that where you connect is, yes, the theme of it, I couldn't do the royal family and the context of British history and all that, which I found fascinating. And that's another great strength of the show, that you really go into the history, of not mm. just with family, but incidents throughout history, um, which are fascinating, one of which, Aberfan, which I was part of. Sure. But, and how, you know, deep and heartfelt that was. But, you know, I think audiences, again, they, they, they like to connect with detail and heart and soul of performances. And so that was really looked after and, you know, casting people like, you know, Imelda and, you know, and, and uh, Olivia, et cetera, you know, Tobias Menzies, you know, great actors. So, yeah, so I, it was, it was in that respect, it was like any other set. But yeah, there were a couple of times yeah. when that, I looked out at these sort of huge lighting rigs that were like <laughs> monsters in the sky, you know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I love the whole, whole thing. And listen, finally, I mentioned to you before we came on air, my middle child, my daughter, who's eight, watches Nativity around the clock uh, outside of Christmas uh, and the thing is those movies I, I kind of find some people have never heard of them and yet there are some households that people just live and breed by them as the greatest Christmas movies of all time uh, you're Mr. Shakespeare kind of an unpleasant fellow in those H- have you have you been surprised by the kind of life the strange life those three nativity movies have had yeah I mean it's, it's unbelievable isn't it I mean, I was in holiday, on holiday in Italy and we sort of arrived in the middle of this sort of town, hill town in central Italy and, and just walking across the piazza and this family ran across with a pram and, you know, about six of them and they, they, they'd driven down from Bolton, you know, to get to get to the, on their holiday through Europe and they'd had the nativity films on a loop. They parked their car and just saw me across the piazza. <laughs> But each generation seems to just respond to, to the films. I mean, it's uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, every, I mean, you're not alone in your, your you know, journalist daughters loving it and people yeah. stopping me on the street saying, can you do a video and all, all that all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, did, I mean, I think if I did cameo, you know, if I were to do something like that, I think I'd make a fortune. But yeah, yeah I think cause it, because it's so, it's so popular. And the, particularly, you know, the first film is, one of the things that I think does touch people is that it, it's improvised. So obviously it's structured and, you know, written and, but, but, and the kid, but the kids are, everyone's improvising. So you get this kind of freshness to it mm. and it's ridiculous and funny. And it's also very, it's incredibly moving and heartwarming. And, yeah. Uh, and Debbie Ice is so clever in that respect that she recognised, I think, that if you let children be children on camera, and you get some actors who are silly enough to do the same, you know, it really starts connecting with kids. So kids love it. And mm. parents, because their kids love it, but obviously, you know, their parents love it as well because they all go to often, often go to some kind of Christmas show, whether it be whatever religion. And and so uh, I think that's why they connect. I mean, I don't want to overthink it. I mean, but, but yeah. there's a lot of joy in those films. It's just yeah. a shame. Absolutely. Well, listen, I've kept you longer than I meant to. He is England's answer to Paul Giamatti, or maybe, or maybe Paul Giamatti is the US's version of Jason, Wat- Jason Watkins. You can see him in the fantastic Oscar-nominated, Oscar-shortlisted, fine, fine short movie called One Note Man. Jason, a pleasure to talk to you. That's great to talk to you, John. Thanks so much. The great English actor Jason Watkins there. And I'm not playing you a clip of the One Note Man which is Oscar shortlisted because it's all 
music. There aren't really any words in it. It's a lovely little film. And it is little because it's just under 20 minutes. And I should mention Jason Watkins. I mentioned my daughter to him there being a big fan of Nativity. Jason Watkins and his wife tragically lost their own daughter, one of his children, Maud, a number of years ago to sepsis. And he's become a campaigner for the awareness of of sepsis among parents and, and health professionals. And I, I just want to mention that we didn't mention it in the interview because I felt it just might be odd shoehorning that in when we were talking about other things. But I did talk to him about it off air and he was very glad that I did. So I just want to mention that in relation to the lovely, lovely man. And the fine, fine actor that is Jason Watkins. That is it for this week. Next week, all going to plan, but I have no reason to doubt it won't happen. I will be talking to Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott about the terrific, and it truly is terrific, new movie, All of Us Strangers. But that's all next week. In the meantime, I wish you a happy remainder to your weekend and have a safe week ahead. You can get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I will remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. You can listen back to any of those shows. Last week's show, which featured George Clooney and Joel Edgerton or all sorts of other things. They're all available for your downloadable pleasure. Thank you for listening and I'll talk to you next week.